Hi again, everyone. This is Kevin Ann at Eagle Strong Voice, and I'm today giving you another sermon from the Covenanters, a separatist political and spiritual movement of which I am a minister. And it's part of a series called God's Revolution, a radical reading of scripture for refugees from false religion. Today's sermon is for the upcoming second Sunday in Advent, December 8th, 2019. It's taken from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3, and it's entitled, The Divine Slash and Burn. The theme taken from the words of John the Baptist, Repent and change, for the kingdom of heaven is here now. Prepare a clear way for God and remove all obstacles, for the axe is already chopping and the dead wood is being thrown into the fire. Well, the local West Coast people called him Crazy Charlie. He was a Coast Salish Indian who lived years ago as a hermit in the wilderness of Valdez Island. At night, Charlie would creep out through the dense underbrush and cut down old-growth cedar trees with a chainsaw. Then he'd pile them all up and put them to the torch. (laughs) That went on for a few years until the Mounties finally caught up with him and put him away where so many other Indians end up. The cops claimed that Charlie was an ex-logger and a psycho, but nobody ever heard from Charlie himself why exactly it was that he went around chopping down and burning up the forest. Well, I thought about Charlie and his people when I read today's Gospel reading of John the Baptist announcing the coming of Christ. That tale, like the lives of Native people, fits last week's biblical message of the sudden ending of one world and the beginning of another. Because that's exactly what happened, of course, to West Coast Indigenous people in barely 50 years during the early 19th century. Most of their society was wiped out that quickly by our churches, by our germ warfare, by our cannon fire, leaving refugees like Crazy Charlie to stumble through the ruins. Well, in today's Gospel lesson, a similar ending is announced by a guy a lot like Charlie, a lonely hermit and refugee from society who's on a mission, a man we know as John the Baptist. Well, John hung out in the wilderness of Judea, on the margins of society, just like Charlie did, because that's the only place where divine truth can really be heard. The babble of the city is never a home for prophets. And there in the freedom of space, John tells his listeners that the ending of all that they know has actually begun. If they want to survive what's happening, they'll have to change their ways now, not tomorrow. They'll have to repent. That's the word he uses. They've got to repent, and that means clearing away and bringing down everything inside ourselves and outside ourselves, that stands in the way of a new world called the kingdom of heaven. It also means welcoming the one who's inaugurating that world, the man called Jesus, the Christ. Well, repent is a really significant word in scripture. It's in fact the first word ever spoken in the Gospels, the first directive and exhortation given in Jesus' work. Repentance sets the tone for all of Jesus' subsequent teachings. It's really like the first word spoken in an exorcism, when the evil spirit is named and ordered to stop what it's doing. In the same way, the possession of our minds and lives by an anti-God world spirit must first be broken and walked away from, if any kind of change is going to be possible in us. That's in fact the way that the early Christians saw their baptisms, not as a ritual, but as a spiritual cleansing and exorcism that permanently separated them from a satanic world of lies and violence and made them citizens of heaven. But what does that word repent actually mean? Well, that depends whether you read the Greek or the Hebrew. 
Greek is a language of the New Testament, and it understands repentance as just a change in one's philosophical attitude, like, as in, I was wrong, I need to look at things differently now. Repentance in Greek is the word metanoiste, and it simply means to think different. But in Hebrew, it's interesting because in Hebrew, to repent is to do something radically different, to do something. The Hebrew word for repent is Shabbat, and it means to turn and walk away from something in a totally new direction, in other words, to be different. And so while the words of John the Baptist have come down to us through the Greek language, the spirit and meaning behind his words, just like Jesus' own words, is thoroughly Hebrew. John is calling people to action, to live radically different lives since a new world has already begun among them. In a way, it makes it easy. It's like the new world is here. Just join it. You don't have to create it. It's here. Walk in, folks. But what then are people supposed to do, according to John the Baptist? Well, when you look at the complete Greek translation, here's what he says. Clear a way for God and make his way straight and righteous. Remove every obstacle to God in order to make his presence and way possible. So there's that interesting partnership between us and God. It's initiated by God, but it depends on our response, our action. Grace, faith. The key words of the Protestant Reformation. Well, in other words, the new world has arrived, as we've said, but to receive it and to make it possible, we have to remove anything blocking or preventing it in ourselves, in the world. That is what repenting looks like in practice not just in theory. Well, this call to change by John to his listeners is really a preamble to a bigger drama. What becomes obvious as the story in Matthew 3 unfolds is that the real decisive action is coming from God. We have to step out of the clutter and blockage in our lives, but only in order to receive the transformation that God is establishing. God is the author and creator of the new world, not we by ourselves, even though we're partners with God in the effort. In other words, heaven has launched a revolution, and everything not of God is coming down, present tense. You notice all of this is present tense. It's an occurrence occurring now. In other words, because of this revolution, it's time for each one of us to make a choice, because guess what, folks? There's no middle ground. As John proclaims, The axe is already laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bring forth good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And we have no better proof of that than looking around these days at the increasing exposure of crimes within the official Christian churches. It's coming down. This cataclysmic language of a divine slashing and burning only intensifies when Jesus himself enters the story. According to John, the Christ will, quote, baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. He will make clean his thresher, gather the wheat into the barn, and burn up the chaff with an unquenchable fire. The heart is an organ of love, they say, so is God. In other words, that passion of Christ and the new world that is here now is separating people. It's gathering God's chosen ones together, will destroy the others and all that other stuff, like so much refuse. That's a process that the people of Jesus' time could really understand, since most of them were peasants or landless peasants, and they slashed and burned their crops to replenish the earth every year and to survive. From out of that burning came renewed life. They all knew that. And as in nature, so in heaven. 
Well, uh, this biblical account of Matthew is a death and life language of conflict and separation and ending. And it represents the hard truth of how genuine change actually occurs. The old has to be purged for the new to arise. That's true within us. That's true around us. Ironically, though, that's not the kind of message that's very palatable or understandable for a lot of us, especially if we're fed on the spiritual pablum and false words of official Christianity. Those words seek to bolster and maintain our present life at the expense of our eternal life. And so not surprisingly, and just like last week's gospel message, once again the Christian Church's official contrivance called the weekly lectionary, their choice of the things you're going to hear in church, that lectionary stepped in again to edit and gut today's reading. This Sunday's Christian congregations will not hear all of Matthew chapter 3, but only the part up to verse 12. The finale to the chapter from verses 13 to 17 has been totally cut out. Now this is really strange because that those last verses are a vital part of the story. In fact, probably the most vital part. They describe the baptism of Jesus himself and his adoption by God. They say, And when Jesus was baptized by John, the heavens were opened unto him, and John saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove upon Jesus. And a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Well, in truth, all of John the Baptist's words until then are a prelude to, and the reason for this foundation event, where Jesus the man is claimed and named by God as the Christ, the first of the chosen remnant who will comprise the new kingdom of heaven, or in Jesus' Aramaic language, the realm of eternity. But the church lectionary has cut all of this out. Now, why would they do that? Well, I have a simple answer, based on experience. (laughs) Because the church hierarchy has always been threatened by the true biblical message, which is one of liberation from below, not conformity imposed from above. God has filled the hungry with good things and has sent the rich away empty. Blessed are those who are poor now, for they shall be satisfied. But woe unto those who are rich, for they have received their satisfaction. What you do to the least of my people, you do to me. And these are the words of Jesus right out of Scripture. And they embody the same spirit of liberation that broke the chains of Hebrew slaves and destroyed Pharaoh's armies. And that spirit speaks of God's plan of a new society where there is no higher low, no rich or poor, but one community of equality and love. Or as John the Baptist said, God will even all the rough places and every mountain will be brought low so that all mankind may see the glory of God together as one. Well, this kind of complete equality is what the first Christian communities actually embodied. As Paul describes in the book of Acts when he writes, And all those who were in Christ were of one mind and heart. They claimed nothing for themselves, but held all their possessions in common, so that there were no poor persons among them. That is repentance and love in practice. The true gospels and mind of God always bend toward that kind of human liberation. Well, such a liberating God could only choose as his beloved son someone born in poverty, the child of a scandalized, unwed mother like Mary, the poor, landless peasant named Eshua, or Jesus in Greek. Not a king or a rich, favored son, but one plucked anonymously from the crowd. Well, quite simply, if I had uttered this same claim a few centuries ago, 
namely that Jesus wasn't born divine, but was a poor peasant adopted by God and appointed as the first of a new line of humanity? Well, frankly, people, I would have been handed a one-way trip to an Inquisition barbecue. Because then or now, what terrifies religious potentates is the message that the poor are chosen by God, that God is the sovereign maker of history and social change, that God is an active force in our lives and can raise even the most destitute man or woman to glory. That fact does away with any need for wealthy churches or sacraments or doctrine or for so-called popes or bishops or priests who falsely pretend to speak for God and mediate truth to the rest of us. The church has substituted itself for God and so must deny God's real presence in practice. But as John the Baptist proclaims and reminds us, God is present here and now. God breaks through all of that. God is breaking open a new pathway for the pure of heart by cutting down everything that's rotten and dead in our world and throwing all of it into a fire of judgment. Well, I had a remarkable experience of that power some years ago in the company of people like Charlie, our Veldez Island tree cutter. The incident took place, ironically, in a big Catholic cathedral in downtown Vancouver. What happened there made history and changed history, thanks to God. Well, there were 50 of us outside the church that Sunday morning in March of 2008. Most of us were native men and women who had endured torture and worse at what the killers still call Indian residential schools. We were there in the spirit of many children who were murdered at the hands of the Church of Rome and buried in secret. We were there to demand their remains back and to name those who killed them and who are still killing children. Well, I knew there was a hidden hand at work that day when... The usual gang of church thugs and Vancouver cops who routinely guarded the front church entrance from our protests, they were all absent that day. There was no one there, just a door standing wide open. Well, to paraphrase John the Baptist, and this is what occurred to me at the time, the path had definitely been cleared, definitely been cleared that morning and the obstacles were removed from us. So I said to people, let's go. I felt that same hidden hand guide me and the 15 others into the yawning mouth of that cathedral. And even then... That force we felt swept us into the cluttered church where people sang hymns to what they thought was God. We hoisted our banner that read, All the children need a proper burial, and turned to face the congregation. The priests were dumbstruck and immobilized. They didn't know what to do. And in the power of truth, we began to speak to them about their church's crimes and the dead thing they inhabited that needed to be brought down. Sure enough, the church did come down. I felt it that day in Holy Rosary Cathedral like a tr rotten tree falling to the ground. The criminal buckled quickly after that, actually within a week. Because the next week, after our occupation of the cathedral had made headlines across Canada, the government announced an inquiry into missing residential school children for the first time, and eventually, what came out of that, a so-called Truth and Reconciliation Commission, run by the criminals themselves. But even those duplicitous attempts at official containment and cover-up have all failed. The truth has finally been known, because like in any exorcism, the evil spirit had been named for what it is. And it started on that day. Ever since then, the false, child-killing Christian churches have been exposed for what they are. Everywhere they are losing their credibility and collapsing, as they should. Like chaff being separated and burned in a huge fire of judgment. On that Sunday in March of 2008, a crowd of impoverished Indians imbued with the truth cleared the way for God to bring down the oldest lie on our planet. The hand of God was with us that day, toppling the mighty from their thrones and filling the righteous poor with a new spirit. 
that same Holy Spirit that adopted Jesus continues to reverberate and grow and open new pathways to the realm of eternity that, that is among us, working to discard and destroy the old corruption. Well, friends, that divine separation is upon us now. Its presence terrifies some of us, those who are chaff, and gives hope to others who are the good wheat. Jesus says later in the Gospels that he didn't come to bring peace to humanity, but instead a sword of judgment, to divide people and set them against each other, and to let light a fire on the earth. That's what the truth always does, whether it's in a family, in a church, or in the world. It consumes all of our lies and crimes in the face of a higher love that midwives a new world into being. But so few of us are willing to repent from this present world of death and suffer such division, to suffer the loss of friends and loved ones, and face the terrible, inevitable persecution and crucifixion that comes simply for that love and for that truth. Many of us are called to that purpose, but few can ever do God's will. But those few who can and do are the seeds of the new world, and God knows and protects his own. But is it really possible? Can heaven reach out even to you and me and ask us to be part of this transformation, just as Jesus asked John to baptize him and help join God with mankind? Will we hesitate and disbelieve such an invitation as John did at first? Or will we welcome the great fire that destroys and creates? Well, that choice is yours, but make it now, for the way of God has arrived. I'm Kevin Ann at Eagle Strong Voice. More to come. Thank you. Hi everyone, Kevin Annett's Eagle Strong Voice again. This is my sermon for the fourth Sunday in Advent, December 22nd. It's entitled, Slaughtering Children, Business as Usual in the Palace. This is about the slaughtering of the innocent by King Herod. And when the wise men had left, look, a heavenly messenger came to Joseph and cried, Wake up! Take the baby Jesus and mother and flee to sanctuary and live there until I bring word, for King Herod will seek to destroy the baby. Then Herod set out in his wrath to exterminate all of the helpless innocents in Bethlehem and its region who were two years old and younger, relying on the knowledge of the wise men. And from every hilltop came the call, the call to mourn and to weep inconsolably, for the mothers of the dead cannot be comforted. While their tiny, butchered remains lie under your feet. They were happy, innocent children, and they were slaughtered and thrown into secret graves. Just think about it. Try to imagine that. Try to picture it and feel their suffering. Well, can you? Will you dare to? Because they died at the hands of church and state. These were official killings. And so you're not just supposed to ask about what happened to those children. You're not supposed to even know or care what happened or even imagine the experience of it happening. You're not even allowed to cry out and horror and, and outrage and call for the horror to stop. Your heart is to remain distant and numb, just as the victims are to remain silent and forgotten, or to remain invisible, because the killers are still in charge. The killers of those children are still running the governments and the churches and the businesses. And if you mention the fate of those babies and ask who is to blame and why it happened, the killers will strike at you. So do the smart thing. 
Stay quiet. Think of nice, positive things. Pay your taxes that allow the crimes to continue. And don't imagine those mass graves of children or the horrible screams of babies being chopped to pieces. Sacrifice your soul as their little bodies were sacrificed. All for the service of the emperor. You can do something else instead. It's risky, but it's possible. You can do what your soul and those victims require. You can risk everything in your life for the sake of the lost children. And for all the others who will die today and tomorrow at the hands of the same killers robed in stately office. Well, that's the situation today in Canada, in America, or anywhere else in the so-called civilized world here in the year 2019. The same was true in Judea in the year 4 BC. The crime and the choice continue. In a way, that's all there is to say today. What matters is not what we say, but what we do. All the words spoken over the years, all the long interviews and tomes written about child sacrificial killings and genocide by church and state and baby trafficking, none of those words have stopped the killer's knives. The crime continues today unabated. And the only way it's ever going to stop is when we place our own bodies between those innocent victims and the killers who are coming for them. This sermon, like my life, is dedicated to that purpose, to stop them. Well, today it's obscenely ironic that the Christian churches that have spilled the blood of so many children will be presenting the gospel reading on the forthcoming Sunday in Advent, December 22nd. When you consider the enormous anger and denial among Canadian churchgoers, whenever we've tried speaking to them about their genocidal acts, you can bet that very few people in the pews in the Anglican, the Catholic, the United Churches this Sunday, very few of them are going to draw a connection between Herod's slaughter of the innocent babies and his attempted slaughter of Jesus that they hear in the Bible, connecting that with their own murder of over 60,000 Aboriginal children over a century in the so-called residential schools. Because the Christians' once-a-week happy hour in church is not designed to place themselves in the Bible story or make it apply to their own lives. Well, despite all that, the blood of the innocent still cries out through the strongest cathedral church door and the most completely closed human heart. As the Gospel passage today concludes, the mothers of the dead cannot be comforted. They cannot be comforted by all of the apologies by church and state killers, or all the reconciliation babble, or all the blood money payoffs, or all the fake government inquiries. Because there's no moral statute of limitation on murder any more than there's a legal one. The guilt remains. The killers of children stand convicted and guilty and sentenced by the very fact of their crime, even if they be kings and rulers and popes. Well, that's the powerful message in today's Gospel reading from Matthew. It's made doubly powerful by how closely it reflects how things actually operate in the world of politics, then and now. For this is a story of the ritual killing of children, one of the oldest practices in history, and a practice of church and state as common and as legal as war and genocide. The story goes, a group of so-called wise men, hired and dispatched by King Herod himself, search out a rumor that a baby is about to be born who's going to overthrow King Herod. There's kind of a dark humor that runs through this whole passage. <coughs> like any politician, Herod blithely cons the not-so-wise men into being his agents. He says, 
You know, I want to worship that newborn Messiah too. Please go find him. Well, the murderous intent is always surrounded in that religious garb, that self-righteous projection. Because it isn't a, isn't it a fact that people, and especially rulers, can more easily kill and order killing when they know that there's a God who sanctions and forgives them for all their deeds. And so, like obtuse academics or unwitting spies on a black ops mission, the Brett boys go to work for the killer on a throne. They eventually discover the little threat called Jesus in a manger, and they dutifully inform the king. Well, are these guys naive? Are they just doing their job? Or are they just stupid? Either way, their news frightens Herod and makes him even more paranoid than he already is, like anyone with a lot to lose. He sees conspiracies everywhere. He distrusts his bright boys, and he tries to have them arrested. Well, failing that, he then goes after baby Jesus, using the information so conveniently provided by his wise guys. But Jesus and his family have been tipped off, and they skedaddle away to a safe house somewhere. Well, frustrated not once, but twice, Herod has to save face, and so like any ruler feeling his power slipping from him, he commits crime. He orders mass murder. Every child in the area under two years old is killed. Well, this clumsy scattergun approach fails to hit Jesus, of course, and one can almost hear the gospel writer chuckling up his, the sleeve of his robe, despite all the bloodshed. Warning. Exile. Murder. The usual pattern of corporate damage control. And then, of course, comes the final stage, the great mourning of this ritual killing that can never find comfort, the cries that never stop in any heart that's still alive. That's how this gospel story concludes, with the reality of life. Nothing is healed, nothing is fixed, because it's carrying on. And the killers don't feel sorry. At all. And that should be evident. Well, it may, this gospel passage may end on that message of mourning, unending mourning and wailing. But when you look deeper, that's the biblical answer to official murder. To the ones who never worry about covering up their mess because they know it's all legal and they're going to get away with it, like they always do. The Bible says, sure, go ahead, worldly rulers can get away with anything, even the ritual satanic slaughter of children. Just look around the world, people. It's the norm. In the Mormon Church, in the Roman Catholic Church, all the major religions do it. That's been documented. We know that now for a fact. Just look at murderbydecree.com. Okay, that may be the fact of the world, but... The survivors are a threat to all of that. The ones who survive with the memory and the knowledge of what these bastard criminals are doing, they're the answer. Because they can remember the crime and the fallen ones. That's a great power, because they can keep the truth and the memory alive. The memory of those children are kept alive by the survivors. But only, only if they keep on shouting out the truth, loudly and publicly... Not going into counseling and feeling better about yourself and staying quiet or giving a gag order after giving a bit of money <laughs> from the killers. No, that's not what we're to do. We're to keep shouting out the crime loudly. That's the only way we pay homage to the fallen and honor them. It's the only way this thing is ever going to stop. By letting God's own pain and outrage yell through our mouths. That's the wrong that's carrying on today. And that shout against the wrong carries on forever. That's the nature of God. It doesn't back off with the truth, like we're always pressured to do. Well, isn't it amazing how even at his birth, Jesus caused hysteria among rulers and poses such a threat to established authority? 
Our innocence and honesty always evokes that kind of reaction in the guilty and causes them to come down on us. Like any truth teller, Jesus became a refugee from state terror from day one and a wanderer in poverty and exile. And he stayed that way to the day of his judicial murder on a cross. So it's no accident that Jesus has always been a symbol and a great inspiration to the poor and the oppressed everywhere, for his life and death as the permanent outsider mirrors their own experience of the world. Well, middle-class churchgoers are another matter. They can't relate to the man, Jesus, except as an abstract cult figure. They tend to be left cold by the human Jesus and by any equating of him with rebellion against the established order or with the underclass even though scripture is full of that association of him and the poor, him and the struggle to overturn existing society. Well, as a clergyman, I constantly experience this dichotomy between how the poor view Jesus and how the affluent do. Take Jesus' first message when he gets up in, the, in Luke 4, they describe this, when he gets up in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth and proclaims, that he's come to set the captives free, to raise up the poor and to open the prison doors and let everyone free. Well, that passage has always tended to alarm and confuse the my wealthier parishioners. It genuinely confused them. said, like, what is this anarchist trying to do, right? But it brought, the same passage brought a relief of smile and amusement among poor folks, among Indians, among the other outcasts in the pews. This divide in the response of rich and poor became even greater when Jesus concludes his proclamation by announcing that he's inaugurating something called the Jubilee Year, that Hebrew tribal event that was really a social revolution. It's when all the debts were canceled, all the land and wealth returned to people, shared equally. It was that leveling down of society, the Jubilee Year. Well, Jesus, in other words, has been causing upset and turning things upside down ever since the day of his birth, and we still see that in the churches today and in any of us who try to embody that radical message. Well, that fact in today's gospel message doesn't exactly fit the feel-good, festive, middle-class Christmas season. Because it lays out the four turbulent realities that characterize Jesus' life and work, like a cycle of life and death, a warning of danger, an escape into exile, a massive killing of the innocent, and a mourning for those fallen. To understand that, we have to go deeper into those four actions in the story by understanding their word, origin, and meaning. Well, the first action is a warning issued by unseen protectors, often the only ones who do help us. You have to get away now or you'll be destroyed. That warning. Well, the Greek word for warning is krematso, and that means to be admonished by God and given a new purpose and name. You're not just given a warning. You say, okay, here, here's some camouflage. Here's a new identity so you can escape. In other words, you're not only yanked to your feet all of a sudden, but you're garbed with a new identity to get you the hell out of there. How else can you operate in this kind of murderous and deceptive world? Second step, you flee into exile. The word is fuego. In Greek and Latin, it means to fly, to fly away. But there's more to it than that. The word also means you shun evil by departing from it. So in other words, this fleeing isn't an act of fear, but it's actually part of a positive step into an inner cleansing of separating ourselves from the evil, evil around us that inevitably affects us. Going into exile from everything we know is our first spiritual act in order to reform ourselves according to a higher heavenly aim. Throughout our many myths and legends, it's like that. The hero leaves his home country and people to go into foreign lands in order to discover his true true purpose and his true strength. 
Well, because of that, the boot always comes down. The empire strikes back. State terror then slays the innocent. Step three. In Matthew 2, verse 16, the Greek word for slay, as in slew the innocent, is anoreo. And that means to steal and then exterminate. The way animals are grabbed, bound up, penned in a cage, and then ritually slaughtered. The same word is used to describe sacrificing an animal or a child. It's part of a massive blood ritual going back thousands of years, whereby people believe that they were purified by the killing of something that is totally pure and innocent. You find in the the Hebrew word kadash, it means two things all at the same time. It means to sanctify, to make holy, and to sacrifice. We make something holy by murdering it. And there you have it. Bingo, the source of the crime. For wired into the language and thought of Judeo-Christianity is the ancient tribal belief that one cannot truly worship God and be made pure without ritually murdering the best, the purest, and the most innocent among us. Why else were the firstborn children of the Canaanites bound and thrown into the fire pit of their rapacious god Moloch, the fire god who ate children? Why was God's own firstborn son Jesus sacrificed on a cross? And why today is the death of the firstborn children of Ninth Circle cult members in the Mormon and Catholic churches the ticket of admission into the higher circles of those organizations? For all the same reason, innocent blood is still believed to be our key to worldly power and even ultimate paradise in heaven. Beyond sick. But what can do one can do in the face of this murderous infamy? This monstrous crime, what can one do in the face of it but wail and mourn without end? And we're not, Wailing isn't just complaining, it's shouting out a message. This kind of unending lamentation follows from the crime that we talk about today. In verse 18 in the passage today, the word for lament is threnos. The word in Greek, threnos, which means to cry out forever. It doesn't stop. But it also means, there's a double meaning again, it also means to warn, trouble, and frighten. As the mothers of the slain children who cannot be comforted cry out on their agony, they're also issuing a warning to the world, one that troubles and frightens people, as it must. For what else than that can rouse a compliant, a complicit population who are party to these crimes? What else can arouse them from that to do more than simply feel sorry for the victims? The gospel message today, and like so much of the gospel, is not meant to be politely listened to and then go away unmoved. It has to cause an eruption in the listener for change to work. There has to be an inner turmoil that breaks us free from the chains of evil and slavery forged on us since birth. Without that inner explosion, our hearts and lives will continue to be unmoved by the mass murder of children and will continue to refuse to stop the killers. And so now, each of you have a choice to make. You too have been warned to flee from such an association with death. You must accept a new name and purpose and go into exile from your life, from all that you have known if you were to be made fit to bear witness to the crime and to give voice to the grief and to the fallen children. All of this is for a higher purpose, to make you fit to be the means of God's revolution, by which the blood-soaked rulers and their evil prince of darkness are destroyed forever as the new creation dawns. As Jesus says later in the 
Gospel of Matthew, that which you refuse to do for me, you're refusing to all of my children, and that which you do to the least of my children, you also do to me. Well, may the great mystery lead you from this land of lies and murder, and remake you in your own exile to be fit for the coming world, and for the least of these are suffering children. Their cries continue to reach out to you. Amen. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. More to come. Hi, everyone. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice again. I am giving you today a sermon for the third Sunday in Advent. That's the upcoming Sunday, December 15th, 2019. And this is part of an ongoing series called God's Revolution, a radical reading of Scripture for refugees from false religion. It's sponsored by the Covenanters, a separatist political and spiritual movement. Today's gospel is taken from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. It's sometimes called Mary's Song of Praise, announcing the birth of Jesus, or the Magnificat. But I call today's sermon an outcast's victory, the world turned upside down. And when you read Mary's words, and you go back to the original Greek, once again you get a very different message from what you see printed in the Bible. Mary's words are, My soul grows and rejoices, for in my poverty I am chosen to do great things. Because of me, rulers are pulled down from their thrones and destroyed, and the lowly are raised up and exalted. The hunger are filled with all that is good, and the rich are banished and sent away empty. Well, all of this reminded me of a woman named Karen Connerly. Karen was someone who people tried not to notice, especially in church. She was poor and bedraggled, She was Aboriginal and pregnant, and she was barely 16 years old. On the morning we met, Karen stood tentatively on the edge of our congregation, with a look of what I thought at the time was fear. In fact, she had arrived that day to overturn our world. At the time, I had been the minister of St. Andrew's United Church in Port Alberni for barely a year, and my life seemed wonderful, content and happy. Our Port Alberni congregation had tripled in size, and everyone seemed quite content. They were especially delighted on Sundays when my little infant daughter, Eleanor, used to toddle to the front of the service during my sermon and insist that I pick her up. So I'd stand there and preach with Eleanor in my arms, and that delighted especially the elderly ladies in the congregation. Now, at the time in my joy, I couldn't imagine how that was all about to change forever. Well, when Karen Connerly appeared that Sunday in our church in the fall of 1993, it didn't really alarm a lot of us at first because a few local Indians had already begun to attend the service. The local New Chalmuth Indians had begun to accept my invitation to come to church, but they were mostly affluent natives. They were tribal council people, and they kept to themselves, which pretty much suited my white parishioners just fine. As for me, I was feeling pretty proud of myself that I had been able to seat Indians alongside whites, which was the first in our church, and to have Indians and whites sitting together on Sundays. It was also a first anywhere in Port Alberni. Even though at the time, despite feeling that pride, I didn't know the conditions, the homegrown slaughter that my own church had perpetrated on the local natives that was responsible for that ongoing apartheid in our community. Well, Karen Connerly changed all of that. She did it in the way anyone does who is living on the edge and can't afford to hide the truth by being polite or considerate. Well, I knew something was afoot when Karen walked into the church and she didn't sit down with the rest of us after our opening hymn. 
She stood at the back of the sanctuary and just stared at me. One of the ushers went up and spoke to her, but she shook her head and, and barked something that made heads turn. I was weighing what to do when suddenly she began shuffling towards me at the front of the church, and even before her wailing began, I could see that she was crying. Her words rocked the church. She cried out, They killed my baby! They killed my little Charlie! Well, at that point, an usher named George Geddes got up, and he went over to the woman and actually put her in an arm lock. And the congregation exploded at that point in cries and shouts of outrage. Of course, I didn't know if they were outraged at what she was doing or what George was doing to her. Anyway, she tried to wrestle free, but another guy got up, grabbed her as well. And at that point, I just came down out of the pulpit. I hurried to them because I was dumbstruck that men that I thought I knew were perpetrating such sudden violence on this little Indian woman. I got the ushers to back off. I guided Karen to an empty pew, and I sat her down, and then I asked everyone around me to just sit down and calm down. Well, Karen then poured out her, her story to me. She described what had happened, and people sat in a stony silence while others got up and hurried out of the church. I was advised later by my board that I should have let George and his buddies manhandle the inconvenient Indian out of church so that the service could have continued in peace. But even then, as obtuse as I was, I knew that something else, something more important was at work than just church business as usual. Karen Connerly was a single mother. She lived on welfare in the midtown slum area of Porto Bernie that's still called the ghetto. It's where mostly Indians live. She'd been raped by her father and by uncles at the local Seychad Indian Reservation, and so she lived in hiding in the ghetto with her one-year-old, daughter, one-year-old son, Charlie, and her newborn daughter the one who was not yet born in her womb. One day, little Charlie began to cough uncontrollably, and soon he turned blue and went into convulsions. So, in a panic, Karen carried him up to West Coast General Hospital and asked for their help. But the emergency room staff turned her away, turned Charlie away. I was appalled when I heard that. I was oblivious to the emptying pews around me. I was just focused on Karen. I said, what, you mean they wouldn't help him? She shook her head and said, they just let him die. The nurse said, they don't treat Indians. Well, after that, Karen sat with the corpse of her little boy at a bus stop near the hospital. She sat there till morning until a Maori found her and actually arrested her, and then she was charged with manslaughter in the death of her own son. No one believed that it was a hospital that had killed Charlie. It's how they treat us here, Karen explained, after she calmed down a bit. It's always been that way for us, but they're not going to kill this one, she said, and she patted her swollen belly. Well, everything changed after that day. For me, especially, the thrones in my mind began to topple for me. I opened my heart and my door to many more of Karen's people and to the legions of other murdered Indian children that still lie in unmarked graves up at the United Church Alberni Indian Residential School. And that change spread from me and around me. It eventually began a political and a spiritual firestorm across Canada and across the world that's begun to overthrow a genocidal church and state system and turn everything upside down. Well, many centuries ago, there lived a woman a lot like Karen Connerly. She too was unwed, poor, outcast. She too was pregnant with a child and with a revolution, a new presence in the world that would make the last first and the first last. 
That woman's name, of course, was Mary, and she was chosen to bring Jesus the Christ into the world. Well, today's Gospel reading from Luke chapter 1 speaks of that revolution. It's often called the Magnificat. Unfortunately, the Christian Church has surrounded this tale with a lot of cultic imagery and belief about a so-called virgin mother of God. But Mary was not a virgin. A church, the church only calls her that because of a Latin mistranslation of the Greek word for young woman. Very young woman. Because Karen was a teenager, so was Mary. They were likely very young. Mary was as poor and as human as Karen Connerly, and as human as Jesus himself. Mary sung a praise that in today's gospel, we read in today's gospel reading, is like John the Baptist's announcement that we heard last week about the coming of Jesus. This song of praise is intended to prepare people for Christmas and the imagined Bethlehem birth narrative, but once again, myth gets in the way of fact. Because as we know, Christmas has nothing to do with Christianity. December 25th was the Roman festival called Saturnalia, otherwise known as the time for reversal. For on that day, the slave owners would take off their robes and be the servant to their slaves, who would become the masters, for the day at least. That's no accident. The same great reversal, the turning of the world upside down, is at the core of Mary's song of praise. By naming Saturnalia as Jesus' birthday, the earliest Christians were saying, this is the consequence of the justice that Jesus has ushered into the world. All the rulers have pulled down, and the poor everywhere are raised. Now, pull down that phrase in Greek. The Greek word for that is katareo, which means to utterly destroy, to obliterate, so they're not there anymore. Rulers of one over another, the rule of one man over another, is obliterated. Well, clearly by that, it's obvious that a radically new world is coming into being for a purpose not so obvious at first. It's often been said that the best way to tame a revolutionary idea is to turn it into a religion. Well, that's certainly happened with Christianity, because if you merely worship someone, you don't have to take them seriously. And so the radical message of Jesus, of human equality and liberation, was quickly contained and mythologized by the wealthy corporate church of Rome into a cult ritual that really smothered the power of Jesus' words and message. That religious cult killed the memory and spirit of Jesus and made him a sacrificial atonement for so-called human sin, a heresy called Roman Catholicism, that, like all worldly empires, creates shame and humiliation in people in order to control them. But that degrading spirit is the opposite of what we hear today in Mary's triumphant song of praise. Her song is imbued with a force that breaks apart oppression and elevates humanity above itself. It shows us that, even in our loneliness, we are chosen to fulfill a higher purpose and remake the world according to divine justice. Well, not surprisingly, as you can imagine, I used to get in trouble with my staid theology professors about this gospel reading. Its revolutionary message was not obvious to them as it was to me. In fact, it frightened my profs because, like Jesus' overturning of the money chambers, changers in the Jerusalem temple, it was outside their experience and went against their perceived interests Richard Leggett was a particularly fat theologian who taught me Bible studies, and he used to get mad at me. He'd say, no, no, these texts can't be taken literally. Mary didn't literally mean the rich when she said they were, they were sent away hungry. 
It's a spiritual allegory. She meant anyone who's inwardly impoverished. And toppling rulers from the throne, well, that's just a reference to Satan. Not to earthly rulers. <laughs> well, I remember answering him, well, then how about when Jesus says that a rich man can no more enter heaven than a camel can pass through the eye of a needle? Doesn't that mean it's impossible for the rich to go into heaven? <laughs> well, Big Dick smiled at me smugly, always quick with an answer, and he said, no, the eye of the needle refers to a little-known gate in Jerusalem. It's small, but you can still crawl through it if you try. How convenient. And on and on ad nauseum. Over the years, I've learned that belief for most Christians is determined not by their faith as much as by their salary and pension plan. Fortunately, Jesus didn't have either. Well, to illustrate all this and to go deeper in today's gospel message, let's examine its key words from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55, if you want to follow along. Mary's first words in this passage are telling. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Well, the words in Greek for soul is psyche, which means substance or breath. And the word for magnifies is megaluno, which means to declare or to make greater or better. My soul magnifies the Lord seems to be saying that Mary herself is somehow making God better. She's making God more than God. Mary is the subject of the sentence. God is the object. Mary is acting upon God and perhaps on the Godness within herself. But then the rest of the passage seems to reverse that. It has Mary saying that God is choosing her to bring down the mighty and elevate the poor despite their lowly status. But this is ultimately Mary's song, and the first words situate Mary as the cause of everything that follows. It's amazing. Well, let's avoid the temptation of interpreting that meaning to somehow cultify Mary into godlike status as the Church of Rome has done. In fact, what's being described in Luke 1.46 is fully human and reveals the majesty of being fully human. If there is divine greatness in our world, it is because of the courage and the witness of the human soul. The mystery called God has taken flesh in every child born and awaits like a seed in us to flower into the life of one like Jesus, who by being fully human was fully divine. Well, when you think about it, it's an incredible revelation. It puts an end to religion and to the world as we know it, where we're expected to always defer to some other authority figure and wait upon salvation and meaning to be delivered by somebody else. That evolution away from that childhood notion into godness within, understanding of our wider place in the world, that evolution is evident when you simply read through the Bible, the way it progresses. I mean, isn't it evident from a complete reading of the Bible that we are already in a direct and unmediated relationship and partnership with the great mystery that we call God. Because as it progresses, God, the idea, the impression of God, and perhaps the nature of God changes. He evolves from a vengeful, judgmental ruler into a state of unconditional love. Well, in the same way that that child matures from self-absorption and understanding, our soul journey as a people is bringing to birth a better divinity through our willingness to accept the risk and the cost of being human, of existence. The mystery grows and evolves through us as we become more than ourselves. The ancient Greek writers and the person who authored the book of Job depict how man rises above God 
by persevering in the truth, whatever the cost, despite our mortality, despite our weakness. The Greek playwright Aeschylus wrote, The gods look with envy upon man, because although living for but a day, he surpasses the Olympians by still daring to love and to be valiant. It's beautiful. And it's all true. Like Karen Connerly and every woman who courageously brings forth life into a world of suffering and death, Mary sings in triumph because she knows that whatever comes, she's created a chance for all of us, the possibility of a new world where the old corruption is toppled. And perhaps her particular joy was to know that her own son would bring about that new way by lighting a fire and a sacred spirit in humanity that would never go out. Karen Connerly's New Chelmsford people have a story that once Christ visited their West Coast tribes, many centuries before the whites ever appeared. The Christ, who came to them as a woman, warned the New Chelmsford that a pale people would come to their land carrying her name and words, but they would lack her inner spirit, her teachings, the teaching that said that all of God's creatures would be loved and respected and treated equally. Well, the Christ told the New Chelmsford that the pale Christians had lost that soul, and so they were to welcome them and lead them back to her true way. The Nunchalnath tried to do so, and they were slaughtered for it, just like Jesus was. But as with him, that spirit cannot be killed by cannon fire or smallpox or by big money. That promise rests within all of us. It's immortal. It waits to be born fully human and remake our world by first turning upside down everything inside us and around us. Well, the week after I was fired by the United Church for uncovering its crimes against her people, Karen Carnerly came back. She appeared in my church one final time. She had heard what had happened to me, and she came there to support me. But when she saw that I was no longer there in the pulpit, she stood up in the service, and she declared, You're crucifying Kevin the, just like you did us, but God sees what you're doing, and you're going to come down. And at that point, Karen, again, was grabbed and finally, like me, evicted from St. Andrew's United Church. And soon after that, she was found dead. But crucifixions have never ended anything. What Karen predicted has come true, for by her courage she has birthed it into being. The rulers are falling, the dead churches are collapsing, and the silenced victims are standing up and speaking and reclaiming the world. Well, I've seen this revolutionary miracle I know it to be true because I've helped birth it into being. I pray for all of you that you may come to know and give life to the same Magnificat, the divine word taken flesh among us, to topple the ruler of this world and to bring to being a new creation. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. Remember, live it. Thank you.